Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Error monitoring is provided by Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. I'm John Calhoun, and this is GoTime. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. And we're back for episode number 74 of Go Time. I'm Brian Kettleson, and with me today is Carlicia. Hi, everybody. And we've got a guest today, John Calhoun. John, you want to hey, say everybody. hi? Hi, everybody. And this is Go Time FM, where we talk about all things Go and sometimes things barbecue and other stuff that we like to talk about. So, John, why don't you get us kicked off by introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, and let's get rolling there. Uh, sure. Um, I'm... I guess historically I've been a web developer, uh, mostly doing backend stuff. And I, you know, I've been doing that for quite a while. I started learning to code relatively young, and I've always sort of been interested in web development. Um, but more recently, I've gotten into doing a lot more educational stuff. So recording videos and trying to release stuff that helps other people learn how to program, specifically in Go. Nice. How did you get into to Go? Um... So one of the startups I was working at uh, a while back, basically every time an API request, sorry, we, it was an API, so I should start there. Um, every time an API request came in, we had to go talk with external APIs. And this was really, really painful in Ruby, which is what the server was written in at the time, because in Ruby, there's not really this concurrent model. It's, you know, a single server handles a single request at a single time. So the way people generally handled it was to like spin up multiple instances of your server. Uh, so you'd use tools like Unicorn or Puma and do that. Problem was that was like crazy memory, like heavy. So you'd be using like hundreds of megs of memory per single web request, which, which was just, you know, not a good idea. Um, and that got me looking into other languages, specifically Go and JavaScript. So Node on the server. Nice. It's almost exactly my origin story for Go which I've told here many times, so I won't repeat because it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how like Ruby and that sort of stuff is is great up until you have a model like that. And then it's just like, this does not work, especially APIs. I found people like hit in very spike heavy traffic. So when you go from like zero requests to like a thousand requests a, you know, a, a second, it's like, all right, this really sucks that we have to try to spin up all these servers real quickly and try to make it work. Yeah, it's not an easy scaling model. I agree. And how did you get into teaching Go? Um, so I guess you, there's like... And, and another, sorry, another question. Did you start out teaching Go or were you teaching... Were, were you already teaching about tech before that? Um, <laughs> I wasn't really teaching too much before that. Uh, so before I got into Go, I released a, an open source project on Rails. And I released some videos along with it to try to make it easier for people to pick it up to learn how to use it. So that was like my first taste for teaching, you know, through screencasts and that sort of thing. And I, I really enjoyed doing it. I thought it was really helpful, especially, you know, where you usually jump in and just see 
a relatively bland readme, um, having some videos that really showed people why they cared about something, you know, was very impactful. So that was like where I first got my taste for it, but it wasn't really until I had learned Go and I'd been using Go for maybe a year or two. Um, and I guess what really motivated me to do it was that I had seen in the Rails community how like how many great resources there were. And it's not that there aren't people making good stuff in the Go community, but it just wasn't anywhere near the same level. Um, like to give you some examples, uh, like Railscast is a, it's like a, or it was a like weekly series where the, every week they released a new video that taught you how to do something in Rails. Um, Michael Hartle had this, uh, this book and he also has videos for it called Michael Hartle's Rails Tutorial. And it would basically teach people how to go from like zero to deploying a Twitter clone, um, you know, in this relatively long book, but it taught you everything you needed to know. And I felt like when I was learning Go, it's not that there weren't resources, but they were all sort of spread out and you had to scour the internet through blogs and different tutorials and all this different stuff. So it wasn't as welcoming to somebody who was uh, more of a beginner or like wasn't accustomed to, you know, looking through all these different resources and piecing them together. I agree with you. I mean, there really wasn't. Um, Avdi Grimm's uh, Ruby Tapas was also a very, it, I think it's still going. It's a very good resource for Ruby. Yeah. It's really neat to have videos with bite-sized instructions. Yeah, I've, I, I like video a lot because um, I, I guess one of the things I always heard people telling other people was um, you need to go code things, obviously, but they, they tell people to go read other people's code. And I didn't ever like that advice because it felt, Anytime I've jumped in and tried to read somebody's code, I've just felt like there was pieces missing. So like, I just don't understand the context at which the developer, you know, actually wrote that code. So I don't know, you know, were they planning on a new feature and that's why they wrote things this way? Or were they time constraints, memory constraints? Uh, you know, maybe they had a real tight deadline, so they like had to skip a couple things. Um, and you just don't know all this information. So I really liked videos as a way of teaching and, you know, especially learning as well myself. Um, because they really give that context and you can hear somebody talk about why they're making decisions they're making. But when you go read somebody's code, you kind of have to infer, you know, maybe that's why they did it, but I don't really know. Exactly. So it's almost like extending the idea of literate programming to uh, the visual world, where instead of really long documentation in the form of comments, what you've got is a, a long and potentially rambly documentation in the form of uh, a narration during the code session. Yeah, so th that's definitely a huge part of it, you know, just making sure people can understand everything. And it's, you know, as you said, it's not the documentation, but it's some other form they can consume. Uh, there's other benefits, I think, to video. Um, like one of the ones is I've actually had a bunch of people recently asking me to do live stuff. Um, and I've typically avoided it because I record in my office with my dog and if he hears anything outside, he barks randomly or whatever. So, you know, if you hear that today, sorry about that. Um, but yeah, so I, I'd record sort or people would want to see the live stuff. And the reason I like that is because I think people get this perception that developers code things idiomatic and perfectly the very first time. And the truth is that most of us don't, we write something, we try to get an idea of what you know, what we're supposed to be building. And then once we really understand the requirements and really understand the technology that we're using and, you know, understand all the pieces, we can come back and refactor our code into something that we would feel proud of submitting as a pull request. Um, but that's rarely the very first thing, at least for me, it's almost never the first thing that I write. 
Yeah, I've done quite a few uh, live coding sessions. And I think that's one of the things that I enjoy most is the idea that, you know, we're not teaching how to get from A to Z in one step. We're talking about how to get from A to B and B to C and C to D. Now, I don't ever write awesome code the first time. And usually my code requires Eric to come through and clean it up when I'm done. But that's a separate show. Yeah, that I mean, it definitely makes sense. I, that's that's why you have a whole team to review your code and help you refactor thing and give you ideas that you weren't thinking of. And it's very easy to feel like you need to get this all figured out on your own. But in reality, you know, the Go, the language was developed by a team. Almost every big project is developed by a team because, you know, with a team, you can get other perspectives and you can learn from each other. Well, one thing that Eric constantly says on the show, both, you know, and in person is that, um, it's really easy to look at somebody else's code and suggest ways to make it better. But the the harder act is the act of creation itself, where you're you're solving a problem. And even if you don't solve it as cleanly and as perfectly as you would have liked the first time, you did the harder thing by solving the problem. Uh, coming back later and, and cleaning things up a little bit is is cleanup and it's it's not the hard part. So shouldn't take code reviews personally. And I, I enjoy it when he says, I think he just does it to make me feel better about my crappy code. <laughs> no, it's, I, I doubt he's saying it just for that reason, because I think anybody who's done a code review knows that, you know, when you're looking back at something, it's easy to be critical. It's easy to look at what things weren't perfect. Um, but, but as you said, creating something from nothing is, it's very hard. And it's also hard to sort of put your code out there when you know you've created it from nothing to, you know, just to get that feedback from people and, and worry, are they going to think I'm dumb because I didn't do this thing perfectly? Yeah. And um, on that note too, it's, I don't know if everybody's like me. Um, when I started out, I would try to write proper codes back to back, right? Like what is the proper way? What is the proper logic? Let me figure it out loud. And now that I've been doing it for a while, I think the more, the, the farther I get, programming, the more sort of like sloppy I start out. And I see the other developers that are more expert than me, they also do, so they, they actually recommend do it this way, just hack it. Like now I fill in stuff that I don't know how to handle yet. I just fill in with uh, fake stuff and I basically try to get the flow of what I'm doing because it's sort of useless, right, to um, get everything right, but if the if the logic is not correct, then you always reiterate. You re, you end up reiterating too much. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. It does. But, I like to write a throwaway version before I actually write one. I very frequently will just write a garbage version that solves the problem or comes really close to solving the problem, and then I kind of understand the domain a little better. And then, you know, write it in a more formal, I want to keep this kind of way. Yeah. Having that understanding of the domain before you actually perfect the code itself, I think is makes a big difference. So this is actually one of the reasons why I'm, it's not that I dislike test-driven development, but I'm not a huge advocate for it because I feel like a lot of people get this impression that they can't, like I, I call that phase where you're just sort of getting a feel for the domain, the spike. Um, where, you know, I'm essentially just writing code that I don't care if I throw it away. I, I just want to understand the problem space better. And I think a lot of times when people really push for this test-driven development, some people take it the wrong way to mean that they can't even do that, that they have to 
you know, immediately go write tests and then know exactly what the final code is going to look like and what the functions are going to be. And so it's, it's not that test-driven development is necessarily the problem. I guess it's just I don't like teaching it, especially to beginners, because I feel like it gives them this false impression of how they're supposed to be developing software. And it can lead to, you know, not doing that experimental stage where they really get to understand that, you know, the problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, because when I started writing codes, mainly I try to focus on what's coming in and what needs to go out and what I need to fill in between those two boundaries, right? Those two points. And then if I start out with a test, I have trouble starting out with a test, frankly. And I love tests, so don't get me wrong. They are essential. But if I start out with a test, then I am constantly modifying the test and the code which I think is sort of the point, <laughs> but I didn't learn to program that way. So it feels, it still feels awkward to me. And with that said, you have a course that teaches how to write tests? Uh, it's, it's not done. So I'm, I, I created a web development course. Um, that was like, I did that before Gopher Sizes. And then, and that was just sort of based on my experience learning Go, learning how to build web applications, and sort of just taking all these different things I experimented with, learned through different tutorials and whatnot. And then after that, I was like, I want to do something, because that's a paid course, and I wanted to do something free. I wanted to give back and sort of help people who were learning Go really have a good time with it. So I made Go for Sizes, which is completely free, and it's just a bunch of like practice coding exercises. Um, and now I'm working on another, which I, it's probably going to be a paid course, um, but basically it's supposed to teach testing through practical applications. Um, it's heavily inspired by Adam Withans. Uh, he has a course, and if you do PHP, you've probably heard of him, um, but it's called Test Driven Laravel. And basically he builds a real application and shows you how to test it as you build it. And I think that's important because... Uh, basically you'll see people that give you like, this is how you test a unit test. And they'll be like, oh, great. I really understand testing. And then the minute they go out to test something real in the real applications, they'll be like, oh man, there's like six issues that they didn't cover in that, you know, real simple two page tutorial. So I want to do it as a, you know, we're going to build a real web application and we're going to test all the pieces as we build them. And you're going to get to see, you know, the issues we run into, how we test them, um, how I think about what should and shouldn't be tested and sort of leverage that. So I'm hoping to get that, honestly, I don't expect that to be done until like late this summer at best, because creating a course takes a lot of time and effort. And then I like to get other people to review it and make sure, you know, I'm not teaching things that are just wrong in some way, or I just didn't misunderstand something or misconvey something. Yeah, it's very hard work creating content. I, I know that well. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So that's... Uh, Gopher Sizes was actually terrifying to me because I've been doing that without the, the review session as much. So uh, everything else I've done, I've, I've done like, you know, get other people to look it over, try to get some feedback and sort of iterate on that. And it's, you know, I'll record something and it might be weeks until people actually really see it. But Gopher Sizes, I've been trying to do like an exercise and release it within a couple days. And I think part of the reason I wanted to do that was just because I wanted to like people to see this, you know... Um, like I said before, this like not perfect solution to problems, because that's kind of the intended audience was I wanted people who were you know picking up Go, just giving it a go. Um, I wanted them to be able to see some practice exercises and sort of build from them. So, you know, I figured it, it wouldn't make as much sense if I made videos that were picture perfect every single time, because that's not where they're going to be. They're not going to relate to that at all. Yeah, wow, so that is, uh, that's fantastic. 
I'm curious what your um, most popular episode is. I see you've got about um, 13 up now. Which which one of them gets the most views? Um, I don't actually know which one gets the most views. I could go look, but I haven't looked uh, recently. I know that the one that gets the most pull requests for like student solutions is the very first one. And I think that's just kind of because it's the first one. Um, oh, and that, that would make sense. If, if, yeah. if you don't mind me plugging this, um, if anybody knows Go and is willing to give you know code reviews, uh, there are a lot of people who are just learning Go, and they'll submit solutions on the uh, the GitHub page. And you know this is all open source for you know the, the, their solutions. And I try to give code reviews as much as I can, but sometimes I'll get really busy, um, overwhelmed, or sometimes it's just nice to get another perspective in there. So if you ever do want to like, you know, go give a code review to somebody who's new to the language, I'm more than happy to have other people help. And I'll gladly send you some stickers or do whatever else to sort of, you know, say thank you for that. Nice. Very cool. Now, who did your gopher art? We need to know. Did you do um, that yourself? Gopher sizes is uh, Marcus Olson. Originally, I was going to work with Ashley McNamara, but she was like, I think, two months backed up. And this was like right around the time that she was moving to Microsoft. So I'm assuming that just, you know, made her super busy anyway. Um, so Marcus Olson did this. Uh, she recommended him to me. And so he created the gophers. And then after he created the gophers, I, I really wanted something animated. So if you go check out the site and see the animated gophers, I took what he had and sort of modified them a bit to make like a three or four frame animation for each one and did those. And then I think I emailed you guys. I haven't actually released them, so maybe I'll post them on Twitter after this or something. Um, Egon, I think it's Egon Elbry. I don't know mm -hmm. how to pronounce his name, sadly. Um, but he's the one who does, I think, the Gotham Go art and some other art. He actually yeah. um, did the artwork for the test course I'm working on. And it's a really cool uh, like crash test dummy mixed with a gopher that I really like. So I've been trying to work with different artists, and every time I work with one, this is something that I think is really cool about all the developers in the Go community, is I offer to pay every single one of them, and every single time they tell me, no, just go donate it to like a charity or something like that. So you know, I've been trying to donate to charities every time I work with them based on you know, how much time it takes them and everything like that, but it's just been crazy that like none of them will take payment for the work they're doing. We have an awesome community, a very giving community. Couldn't agree more. How do you decide on the content? Do you have a source of inspiration or is this just stuff you wish you had, um, had guidance to practice with when you were learning Go? Where does the inspiration um, come from? Your, your like rule of thumb for deciding what to include in your courses? Um, so if it's like a larger course, like, you know, like a web development one or a testing one, I'll pick a big project that I want to build and I'll sort of, everything will sort of come from that. Uh, so, you know, like if you're, if I'm building a, uh, a photo sharing application and that's like what the course teaches, you know, everything sort of just stems from that. Um, but for gopher sizes, it's a bunch of small exercises. So, you know, obviously that's not the case. And that was, it was a good mixture of just things I had built in the past, things I just thought would be fun to, to do for one reason or another. Um, some of them were recommendations from people I had been you know, interacting with and helping out with Learning Go, and they would say, I'd really love to see you build this or something like that. Um, so it really stemmed from a lot of those. Like, I can give you some examples. The uh, Choose Your Own Adventure, um, one of the exercises you build a Choose Your Own Adventure book, which is 
It's really just a web server with uh, a JSON file that describes this story. And at every different spot in the story, you can click a link to decide what you want to do. So maybe you wanted to go to Gotham Go or you want to go to um, GopherCon in Denver. I think that's the way the story goes. It's been a while. Um, so you click on the link and the story progresses. And I don't know if you guys have read those Choose Your Own Adventure books when you were young, but it's based off of that. And the exercise was actually based off of one year for Christmas, I made my wife a, a Choose Your Own Adventure book that was, it was online, but it was a, a book that I took construction paper and crowns, and I colored different like artwork on them. And it basically told the story of our relationship. So like how we met, things like that, um, when we got engaged. And I had some variations because it was a Choose Your Own Adventure story. But, you know, I, I played the obvious trick of no matter what route she took, she ended up married to me. So, you know, th that's how that one went. And she really liked it. So I thought, you know, that'd be a cool, relatively simple exercise to introduce people to JSON and some of that stuff. So it, it worked out. Um, another was I, one of the exercises you create like a URL forwarder. And this is something that almost any project can make use of. Um, I used it in my book or one of the books I wrote because, or it was a book that went along with the web development course because I'd want to link to like, source code and code differences, or I'd want to link to an article that I thought might be useful. But you know, when you write it in a book, you're worried that the link's going to break or something. So I made a URL forwarder so I could control the server. And then if the URL ever does break, I can find something comparable or a cached version and you know update the URL forwarder. So again, it was just sort of based off of what I thought might be useful and what would be, you know, um, fun to build and teach something new. One of the things that uh, I've been doing recently is the new Gopher Snacks website. And it's probably very similar to Gopher Sizes, except uh, these are just videos of me talking and demonstrating. There's no exercise at the end of it. And it's it's been uh, interesting moving from speaking in front of lots of people teaching to recording myself with no audience. And I find that I, I like the teaching better the the interactive you know, working in front of people it's more stimulating and it's it's much harder for me to convey that message in front of a camera and i don't know whether that's because i expect more perfection out of the camera i don't know but it's it's very interesting i'm finding it more difficult to do the recorded bits it's it's funny because i think i'm the exact opposite so i'm I'm giving my first talk at Gotham Go this year, and I've never even been to a conference, let alone spoken at one. So I'm saying I'm nervous is like the biggest understatement of the year for that. Um, and like even doing this, I'm, you know, I was a little bit nervous going into it. I'm still you know, a little bit of nerves, but I'm I'm trying to think of it as more like just recording myself, because for whatever reason, I've just gotten used to that. And it just feels like I'm, I guess, on a video call with you know people and even though they're not there and I can't see them. That makes sense. What is your topic at Gotham Go? Um, so I'm using Gopher Sizes as an example, but the, the core of the talk is going to be, I, I want to talk about how people get this perception that they have to use all these technologies that uh, they keep reading about, they keep hearing on the internet. So to give you examples, um, you'll hear about Docker and deploying with you know Docker and continuous integration and using React on your front end and using all these different things, uh, like GraphQL is another one that comes up a lot. And I interact with a lot of people who are just learning to program or who are like transitioning from front end to back end work or 
you know, in some way are learning new things. And a lot of them get really caught up on this, this feeling that they have to use all these different pieces of technology that are, you know, like Facebook introduced GraphQL to solve a very specific problem that they had. And it's not that it isn't really cool technology, but if you're building your very first API, GraphQL might not be the way to go. So uh, I guess to get back to that, I I'm trying to give the talk sort of explaining that you can build things that are useful, um, that are you know, still cool projects, that are still, you know, not, you know, like that aren't bad in any single way, that don't use all these pieces of technology that you, know, you read on the internet all the time, or read about on the internet, and think that I have to be using these things. I couldn't agree more, yeah. But what if I do have to be using them? What if I like shiny, shiny things? And, blink and, and how, do, how do you even know before using it? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it, it says I, right I, on the home page that you can't live without it. So <laughs> I think that like the shiny new things are really cool if you're learning, if you're using them to learn them or to get more experience with them. So like take you, Brian, for example, if, if you want to use GraphQL and experiment with it, you're experienced enough that that's okay. Like you can jump into it and figure it out and go from there. Where it really frustrates me is somebody who literally has never built an API in their life, barely knows anything about backend development. And for some reason, they're convinced that they have to use GraphQL, React, and six other different you know, things to build their application. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's, it's not worth building. And I see so many people just get frustrated and quit and don't really get to experience that joy in building, you know, building cool things and showing them off to their friends. And it frustrates me because I think back to like when I learned to code and I used you know, free LAMP servers uh, learning PHP, and I was like 13 at the time, so I had no idea what I was doing. But it was still just fun to build those things, and I think a lot of people just miss out on that, just hacking away and having no real idea what you're doing and just learning because it's fun. Boy, that just sent me back into a, a wave of nostalgia without going into the, oh my God, I'm so much older than you game. I remember typing in things from magazines like Byte Magazine. And then getting really, really, really upset with my parents because they turned off the computer. We didn't have the cassette deck or the disc player to to save the things that I was typing in. So, yeah, those were good days. That was fun. That's it, it's weird because I I think about future generations and some of the things I learned when I learned to program. I know they won't have, but I also think like they'll have way more resources, which is awesome. Um, cause you know, like back when both of us learned, there weren't really people creating online courses or anything. So you had limited options and nothing was more frustrating than, like you said, getting a magazine or a book or something and reading it. And like, it was outdated and you're like, well, what do I do now? Um, but I think they will miss out on some of the things like you said, like using the old technologies or using things that are just simpler systems. Like I think I, the first thing I learned to program on was an Apple basic computer and we mm -hmm. actually had floppy disks that were actually floppy. And like the one thing I remember out of all the stuff I did with that was that we learned how at one point we learned how to take our disks and make them run a program when you stuck them into the computer. So once we learned that, we all thought, okay, we can add security to our disks. And it wasn't that long after that until somebody realized, oh, you control C while programs running and it terminates the program. So we were, you know, effectively breaking each other's security. And a little while later, we're all like just trying to find ways to uh, you know, beef up our security on our disks. And it didn't make any sense in the fact, like we had nothing important on these disks at all. We all wrote the same programs, but we were all so worried about having the best security system. And like, 
I read books like Ender's Game or, you know, different sci-fi books like that. And I like see things like that. And it's obviously not on the same level as those books, but it sort of like brings back that nostalgia of, you know, I had some experience that was sort of like that and it's always going to stick with me. Sounds like an arms race of the, of the best fun kind. So when you do uh, web development, John, what's your favorite way to build apps in Go? Are you a standard library guy? Do you like using JavaScript and a Go API? Uh, what do you find is, is best for you for web development? Because it sounds like you've done quite a bit. Um, if I can, so I, I try different things depending on what I'm building, but more often than not, if I can get away with not using a JavaScript front end, I won't. Um, not that I dislike them. It's just in my experience, they always feel like they're changing and they're, I don't want to have to spend time learning something new. So a lot of the times I can just get something up quicker without it. And then I can go back and add it in if I want to. So a lot of the times it's just a HTML rendered from Go. Um, I mostly use the standard library. I say that in the sense that I use a lot of third-party packages, but I don't um, I don't really use a framework of any sort. I've messed around with Buffalo and I really liked it a lot, but I don't like every single piece of it. I don't, um, I think it was like the, I think it's the context they pass into web requests is kind of like a mega context type thing. And I'm just not a huge fan of that personally. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, you know, some things like that, but I'll, I'll try different stuff. So like even when I made gopher sizes, I tried a couple different things that were a little bit different from what I'd done in the past. And I was just kind of curious how it would work, what it would end up looking like. Um, like one example of that I can give is um, you, you've used Ruby before, so you've probably seen the decorator pattern. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for those of you who don't know what it is, essentially in Ruby, because you can meta program like nothing, uh, or you're like just like crazy, um, you essentially take a class and you overload the methods on it so that you can change what the output of them is. So like, let's say you had a created at date, you would change it so that when they called created at in the view, instead of just printing out a timestamp, it might say something like one day ago. So you could really just take your models that you have that represent backend data, and you could sort of set them up to give you the strings that you want on the front end. So in Go, you can't just do that uh, with your, you know, with your types. You, you can't just make that work with a statically typed language like that, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, but one of the things you can do is uh, you can take all these fields that are on a type, and you can take the methods that are on the type, and you can wrap that entire type in another type. And then when you get to the front end, um, where this would usually become an issue is a field, if you wrap a method around it, go, like there's a difference between calling a field and calling a method. But when you get to the HTML template package, it actually doesn't care which of those two you're calling. So you can actually start to um, do something very similar to that decorator pattern in Go with the HTML template package. And I was just sort of experimenting with it, seeing what it was like, seeing if it led to issues or confusion or anything like that. So when I built gopher sizes, I actually used that a decent bit, just sort of getting a feel for how it worked and whether it made sense long term. Do you find yourself um, in in smaller projects experimenting more with the technologies that you use? Yeah, that would that would mostly, especially now, because um, so like historically, I was working with startups, so it was almost always like I worked at Google before then, but. For the most part, it was companies that were less than 10 people, and they're really trying to get product market fit. So the application isn't massive. Um, and you can sort of iterate over what you have, you're building something relatively small, and you, you can experiment with some stuff without too much worry. And 
more recently, it's gotten even smaller because I have sort of transitioned away from doing consulting work and that sort of stuff to just doing educational stuff. So I'm, this is like the first year that I'm not doing any, like I haven't done any consulting work so far and I'm trying to get through the whole year without doing it. So I guess we'll see how that goes. But uh, I, I want to do that because that means that long-term I can create more content to help people learn go better. But it also means that, you know, the people who do buy courses I have, I can provide more support for them. I can be around to really help them with stuff because that's something I really value about what I, you know, what I'm doing is that I don't, I don't sell this course and then just disappear or I don't just like not update it or anything. I, I like to really help people. And like even on my blog, I write you know articles there that discuss different topics. And almost all of those stem from questions that I get asked in the Slack that I have. So like I don't even have to think about what I want to write about. It's usually just somebody will ask a question and it'll turn into a blog post. But yeah, I guess getting back to your question, since I don't know if I answered it properly, uh, most of the things I'm working on are, are relatively small these days. I'm I'm planning on building something a little bit bigger. Uh, specifically, I want to build something to sort of house all the video courses I have. So that'll end up being a little bit larger. And then the other thing that I, I want to build something and actually release it. I have it in my mind for what it is. I just don't want to talk about it just yet. Um, for what I want to do with the testing course. So I want to build that out and it'll probably be bigger than what will actually be covered in the testing course, but it'll be the same type of idea. Nice. One of the things that is always a big trap for me or has been a big trap for me in the last two or three years is the my propensity to build tools to enable the thing that I'm trying to teach rather than actually just teaching the darn thing. And it's it's been a real stumbling block for me. Oh, you know, I should just build a much better website and integrate Docker and have runnable uh, tutorials. And, you know, I probably could have gotten twice as much teaching done if I had just put up a link that said download this here. I can relate to that, but at one point I just forced myself to start producing videos. Um, and in the, like to give you an example, one of the things I've wanted to do for I think the last year, and it's not hard to do, I just haven't done it, is um, when you're watching a video, you can't copy paste the code. So you know, like it's one of the big downsides to a video is that you pause the video, and anybody who's watched a teaching video has had this point where they pause it, they try to code all the code that's on the screen. They have some random typo and they just don't know what it is. And they're like, what is going wrong? Why is my code not working? His was working. Um, so with editors like Atom and VS Code, you can actually write a plugin relatively simply that will keep track of all the changes you're making in your files and then can sync them in, you know, either a JSON file or you know, something that will just have like timestamps or whatever. And then you could sync that up with the video so that on the website, you can just actually give them a copy pasteable version of all the code on your editor at any given time in the video and just sync the two. So building that is really, especially in like Atom, I built the plugin for it in like, I think it was a half hour and I'd never built an Atom plugin before. So I know building the plugin is easy. It's just getting all that data, syncing it up with all my videos, um, recoding the videos and, you know, going through all the videos and actually live coding them so I can keep the two synced is just a lot. And as much as I really think that'd be a cool toy to have to add to everything, it's, it's, it's always that constant struggle, like you said, of, do I build the toy or do I release another video? Yeah, it's difficult. And I always get, get caught by the shiny. Oh, I should just go build this tool. Question for you, John. Um, once you have these new videos, these new courses that you have on your current pipeline, what will you, what do you conceive of working on next? Let's say two, three years down the road, 
you have plenty of materials um, for this level of, of expertise that you're trying to reach. What is next for you? Um, I know that after I'm done with the testing course, what I want to do beyond that is something very similar to, have you ever seen like LoraCasts or um, RailsCast was another example of this? But basically, there's a bunch of sites out there that have sort of continued education. I think LoraCasts calls themselves the Netflix for your development career. So the idea is that basically you're releasing um, new stuff that teach new uh, you know, design patterns, new, you know, as a new thing comes out and go, like say they release a new, uh, let's say they somehow added generics at some point, you could teach some videos sort of showing how to use them effectively, how to get yourself in trouble with them. Um, different things beyond that. And with those models, they're they're kind of a continued education thing. So it's like you release an hour of video or maybe a half hour of video in bite-sized chunks um, every week. And I could see myself doing that uh, specifically just because I don't think there's ever going to be a time where you want to stop learning as a developer. And beyond that, I think that there's still always going to be new technologies. So like, you know, Docker came out and people all wanted to go learn that. Um, but beyond that, you know, there's always going to be things like a new API comes out, a new technology comes out, or a new um, Google App Engine, you know, some new version of that or something comes out. So I think there's always space for people to be learning. And I'd sort of like to continue down that route, just always helping people get better with their career. But I will say that one of the things that worries me is I, I don't want to get to the point where I'm doing that 24-7. I think I need to make sure I'm actually building things at least three or four days a week. Because I think Railscast, the guy who did those videos, is one who ran into this issue where he did those videos for like three years. And after the third year, he kind of felt out of touch with building real Rails applications. So as a result, he's like, I don't really know how to make videos that help people when I'm not really in touch with building, you know, real applications these days. All I do is, you know, work on this toy application that I've had for too long. Yeah, that's a real danger, especially uh, when you've isolated yourself so much by doing all of that smaller work you're not building real world real world apps say that one fast a couple times that's tough for me yeah i i don't know exactly how to solve that problem i know that i I think it takes a couple like at least a year or two to sort of get to that point um and i think one of the things that'll help me is if i'm continually building things that i care about sort of in the background um and maybe that means you take six months off and build a bigger project or go work somewhere um and that could even mean maybe i get to go you know, if I get myself to the point where I'm can completely fine financially, maybe that means I can donate six months of my time to go help some, you know, organizations or nonprofits or something like that. Either you know, build something that's going to really help them in some way, or there's even like a Y Combinator is a startup incubator. They have nonprofits coming through there, and you know, maybe I could spend six months going and sort of doing a pseudo internship type thing where I help them build out some stuff. So I think there's options to sort of avoid that, but I. I, I definitely have that on the top of my mind as something that I don't want to be an issue. I don't want it to be something where I'm just not teaching relevant information. Well, you've already thought about it, so you're a step ahead of me. <laughs> All right, we've got some good uh, Go projects and news to discuss this week. Just moments ago, hot off the press, Go 1.10.1, a minor release, came out. Uh, looking at the release history, it really doesn't look like there's that much exciting to it. Um, some fixes for the compiler and the runtime, archive zip, crypto TLS, 
some JSON and HTTP and profiling updates, but uh, nothing big or exciting, nothing that said, oh my God, upgrade now. So that was, that was a big piece of news that just came out. You know how to sell it. <laughs> Quick, fire up your update engines. This is critical. How's that? Much, better? much better. Good. And then something that is near and dear to my heart, Vimgo 1.17 was released. This one has Delve debugging support, which I have not yet tested, but it's way, way up at the top of my list of things that sound like fun. Vimgo is, is one of those game-changing pieces of software for me. It's made my life so much easier. This is one of those times where I kind of wish I learned Vim a long time ago. I have to blame Eric for it. I, I kept watching him be so fast and productive in Vim. I was like, damn, I just, I always wanted to do that. But I actually had to have Eric sitting nearish to me where I could turn around and say, how do I do X? And that, that really helped me. And I still don't know what I'm doing in Vim. I, I wonder if anybody actually does know what they're doing in Vim. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm fast enough to get where I want and I have nice muscle memory built. So I enjoy it quite a bit. I uh, I got like that with Sublime Tech, so I was like super efficient with it. And then their Go support was just terrible. So I'm, I don't want to say terrible. I don't mean to say like anything negative about the guy who builds the, the Go plugin. But it, at one point, the guy who was doing it, I think, moved over to Adam. So as a result, he just didn't care about the plugin that much of the time. And, you know, it's completely relatable. If you're not using it, you don't want to develop it. But it kind of left it, you know, a little bit behind where like Atom and VS Code were and some other tools were. So I had to sort of go learn, you know, another tool. And right now I'm using VS Code and it's, it's similar, but there's still a couple differences that'll mess me up every once in a while. VS Code is pretty awesome. Those are the only two that I use, Vim and, and VS Code these days, because VS Code is so light and fast. If I ever feel like I need a, a GUI, and I do because I'm, I'm not really good at the, like, global search and replay stuff, even though Eric tells me to use AG and whatever. I don't know. I still don't know how to do it all. So I just open up VS Code and do a global search and replace and I'm much happier. So another uh, bit of news that crossed my desk, zero log, uh, github.com slash RS slash zero log an allocation free JSON logging package. And uh, allocation-free logging is always exciting because you don't want your logs to slow down your program more than the programming is slowing down your program. And at this point, we're really close to the, the concept of, uh, of having mux wars in the logging world. So um, this one has some nice benchmarks and shows no allocations for um, almost every operation that it does. And it looks really fast and really lightweight. So I'm looking forward to testing that one out. Looks interesting. Did you guys have any news or anything interesting stumble across this week? I'm drawing a blank. And Crickets. doesn't want to talk to us. Crickets. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> All right, then uh, if there's no other new news, let's move on to Free Software Friday. Uh, this is a segment that one of my personal favorites where we just give a shout out to a person or a project that's made an impact on you. And that doesn't have to be go related. It uh, can be a group, a company, a project, anything really just uh, a way for us to give some appreciation to people 
or projects that uh, have an impact on us. So I will kick it off this week with Luke Smith, github.com slash Luke Smith XYZ. Luke released a package called Mutt Wizard and Mutt Wizard is awesome. I've been trying to go um, all command line for my email forever. And I tried just frazzes.files, I couldn't figure them out. Uh, but this Mutt Wizard is, is a really nice uh, curses based wizard that just walks you through the whole thing, gets everything configured. Uh, I spent a couple hours, I guess it was Monday or Tuesday morning, and got MUT configured. And I still really don't know what to do with attachments in MUT yet, but give me some time, I'll figure it out. Otherwise I can read my email now. And I'm very grateful for Luke's work putting that together. So do you mind if I ask you what's the benefit of that? Uh, for me personally? Yes. And you're, you're going to laugh and call me OCD and it's okay. I accept it. I have, so I use i3 window manager and the, um, the processor usage history, what do you call that? You know, the, the three slots of, of processor usage is up in the top of my title bar. And for some reason it drives me nuts when it gets high. So when I look at a mail app, especially these electron based mail apps these days, uh, you know, they're spinning my processor up too much, but MUT or what I'm using NeoMUT doesn't really take any processor usage. So I get to keep my, my processor usage really low. It's kind of OCD. Oh, I, I have a, I wish you I hadn't asked a, that. <laughs> I, I have another solution to that too. Just don't open your emails. <laughs> Just don't open your, yeah, there you go. I wish. I wish so much some days. Um, so does, is this supposed to be like a new thing or can I talk about something that's a little bit older? No, anything. Absolutely anything. Uh, okay, so github.com slash jiggish, J-I-G-I-S-H slash slate, um, S-L-A-T-E for slate. It's a window manager for Mac that I, I think the last update was like three years ago, four years ago, I don't know, maybe even more. But um it's basically it allows you to sort of set up configurations that you can move windows to on your, your screen. And it's incredibly helpful when you're using like an ultra wide monitor or something like that. So I've been using it for quite some time now, but it's by far one of my favorite open source projects. So would that be comparable to like Divi or yes. some of the other like window an managers? Okay. Yes. Very nice. Carlesia, any uh, open source you want to shout out this week? No. No. All right. And Eric's not here. So even if he had something to shout out, he, he doesn't get a vote. Sorry, Eric. All right. Well, if we've got no other open source to shout out, then this is the end of our show. I'd like to congratulate uh, John and Carlicia for such a great show. And thanks everybody who is listening live. And thanks to those of you who will listen eventually when we get this released. Uh, we'd love it if you would share this show with your fellow Go programmers or people who are looking to become Go programmers. You can point them to gotime.fm. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at gotime.fm. Or if you want to suggest topics for the show or perhaps uh, suggest a new guest for us, github.com slash gotime.fm slash ping. Just open up an issue. And with that, thank you, John. We appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, John. And thanks, everybody. Bye. 
right, that's it for this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us. In real time during the shows, head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, Linode, we host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. GoTime is edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.